Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and you're listening to episode 25 of the Equip Project podcast. Jim, it's really good to be able to tune in with you, even remotely. Um, how's life down in Kalinchi? It's beautiful. I'm very grateful that I can spend this lockdown in such a beautiful part of the world. Uh, in fact, the only health issue I have experienced since we last spoke, Ollie, is a dose of sunburn. Uh, because I spent too long sitting out in the garden. I mean, it's a weird experience to be sitting in such a beautiful setting, looking out over the islands in Strangford Loch, thinking about that dark shadow that is hanging over humanity at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree. I find it so strange looking out the window at the blue skies and the sun, um, and all the while there's this crisis going on, and uh, people, you know, people are really suffering. Um, and it's just such a contradiction, I think. I, I think it's particularly tough for people trapped in places like London, maybe in a, a small flat or apartment with kids to entertain. And um, for, for people like that, I really feel another one of your travel stories um, is going to be beneficial to remind us all of, of the benefits of staying at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, the danger with these travel stories, Ollie, is that they become like the cake motif of our first three episodes. <laughs> But I'll tell you one last one, and then we'll give this segment a, a decent burial. The, the ability to speak different languages is a, is a wonderful talent. I'm in awe of people who, who can do that. I have a brother. My eldest brother can speak six or seven languages fluently, but I can barely speak a word of a foreign language. I mean, I once survived for four days in Berlin simply by saying the word wunderbar every time anyone spoke to me. Wunderbar is the, ger- <laughs> is the German word for wonderful. And I have to say that the scheme was amazingly successful. Food appeared on the table in front of me in restaurants. My business meetings went without a hitch, and I got upgraded to business class on my return flight home. But traveling in Europe was plain sailing in comparison to more remote parts of the world. Um, I was only a kid when this happened. I once had to give a a presentation to uh, a Japanese company in Tokyo. It was actually Hitachi. Uh, And they had, of course, laid on an interpreter for me. But she could make no sense of my accent. She had learned English from an American tutor. And so the speech of an Ulsterman was like Swahili to her. And I had a colleague with me, and he was an Englishman, a real Oxbridge toff. I mean, he, he was even more polite than you, Ollie. <laughs> so, so the presentation went like this. I spoke a sentence. My English colleague then repeated the sentence in this ghastly American drawl. And then the Japanese translator spoke. And it was the most laborious presentation I've ever given. So, so halfway through, I tried to tell a joke. And the patience of my colleague snapped. Really, Jim, you're trying to tell a joke? And of course, the Japanese girl duly translated this interaction and caused the meeting to lapse into complete confusion. But later that day, I took time off to explore the city of Tokyo. And I was on my own because, for some reason, my colleague felt the need to lie down in a darkened room. And I became completely lost, and I ended up getting on a train that was heading for the north of Japan. I mean, it was a really, really scary moment. (laughs) None of the signs were in English. No one around me spoke English, and I had no idea where I was. Of course, this was in the days before smartphones or GPS. And the only information I had in my head was that the Japanese symbol for Tokyo was a stylized tree with a sun behind it. And so I took an enormous risk by getting off the train and boarding another one at random, and it fortuitously brought me back into central Tokyo. I couldn't wait to get back home. <laughs> yeah, oh man, I actually do I do uh, struggle with languages myself, Jim, so I have a lot of empathy for that, to be fair. Well, by far the most embarrassing moment for me occurred in a hotel in Paris. I mean, I had just endured the humiliation of checking into a French hotel, I'm sure. <laughs> Some of you have had to go through that. And I was waiting for an elevator to take me up to my room. 
and I was joined by a young French couple. And so I resolved to say a few, you know, well chosen words to them in French. And I was determined to be confident. Uh, so, you know, bonsoir or something like that. <laughs> but for some inexplicable reason, my brain crashed. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened to me, but as I was leaving the lift, I turned to the young couple and said with enormous authority, aujourd'hui. The lift doors closed slowly, and I will never forget the look of dazed incomprehension on their faces. And I then spent the next minute slowly beating my head against the lift doors. But I often wonder what effect I had on them. Maybe their relationship had plateaued, and out of nowhere, this large man appeared and solemnly said, Today, and then disappeared. <laughs> Maybe it was a, car- a carpe day of moment in their lives. I wonder if they decided to get engaged or maybe they just phoned reception to complain. I don't know. But the exquisite embarrassment of that moment still causes me to scream into a pillow at night. That is brilliant. They probably still think back to that day as a really significant moment in their lives. <laughs> this mysterious man. Um, that's fantastic. Well, maybe we'll do, we'll, we'll have a go at a French episode at some point. I, I know my, uh, my GCSE French teacher, I caused her a lot of grief, I think. Uh, so she'd really, she'd really appreciate that if I, if I utilized a bit of that French at some point. So maybe that's an option down the track. Uh, as usual, Jim, your, your travel story is great, but it doesn't really have any connection to what we're going to talk about. Um, so we're going to have to somehow, uh, just crowbar in the topic now, um, uh, t- today's topic, though, is a really significant one, and we had someone write in on Instagram about this topic and and wanting to know um, how we how we'd think about it. The question is about Christianity's exclusivity, the idea that there's really only one way to God, and I think in today's culture, in particular, that is a really controversial. Uh, claim it's seen potentially even as bigoted or arrogant um so probably the best place to start is to remind everyone of some verses from the bible so in john chapter 14 and verse 6 the lord jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me that sounds like an exclusive claim uh, is that the case jim Yes. Sometimes I try to show just how shocking those words are by asking people to identify the most controversial word in the sentence. And some people say truth or something like that. But it's the definite article. Notice in that quote, Christ did not say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. Christians don't say that Jesus is my way, my truth, and my life. The most controversial word in John fourteen six is the word the. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah, we also could have quoted Acts 4 and verse 12, where Peter is talking of Christ and he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in his first epistle, uh, John, the apostle John, makes a similar claim when he says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. These declarations are unambiguous. They're either true or false. Either Jesus Christ and the New Testament writers were right or they were wrong. But that black and white logic is repellent to the modern mind. Uh, Tim Keller tells the story of a 24-year-old woman from Manhattan who got really frustrated with him. How could there be just one true faith, she asked. It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and then try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers. So the issue we face in this episode, Ollie, is one of the biggest barriers many unbelievers have to overcome when they approach Christianity. 
The exclusive claims made by Christianity are so unpopular that loads of attempts have been made to explain them away. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is a really significant episode, actually, Jim. Um, even even for people who, who don't have a faith, who aren't Christians, I think this is one of the biggest barriers for them. Um, in terms of how we structure this conversation, Jim, can a verse like the ones we've just talked about be explained away? How, how would we go about addressing this, this issue? Well, at least three attempts have been made to explain the problem away. Uh, and I suggest that we take some time to think about those three attempts. Then I think we should tackle the charge of arrogance head on. But finally, Ollie, I, I want to make the point that in its most important sense, Christianity is not exclusive at all. Okay, I, li- I like the sound of that approach. Let's let's start by thinking about the three main attempts people have to explain away Christianity's exclusivity. What's the first of those three? The first attempt tries to dilute the doctrinal differences between the major religions of the world so that we can say that all of them are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. Now, way back in episode 11, which seems like a long time ago, we talked about the charge that religion poisons everything. You know, that famous quote um, um, from Christopher Hitchens. And in that discussion, I made the point that the term religion is a false universal. It's such a wide category of belief systems that it can serve no useful analytical purpose. And I made the point, and I'll just summarize it now, that the major religions of the world contradict each other in the most profound ways. Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. Christianity's central doctrine is the deity of Jesus Christ. Islam regards that doctrine as an unforgivable blasphemy. It's the sin of shirk. Hinduism has no concept of the supernatural because it thinks that all reality is part of one big soup. Now, these differences are irreconcilable. The only belief systems that stand a chance of merging might be Buddhism and atheism. Or possibly atheism might morph into a form of pantheism, which might make an alignment with Hinduism possible. But the idea that the major religions of the world all teach the same thing is only accepted by people who know nothing about the major religions of the world. So if that's the case, why do intelligent people say things like all roads can bring us to heaven or, you know, we're all going to the top of the same mountain, different paths to the to the same place? Um, why, why is that such a common thing to hear people say? Another example of that is people saying stuff like everyone's on their own journey, but all good people arrive at the same destination. That, that kind of language, Jim, I'm sure you've heard that a lot. Yes, and the underlying thought is that the beliefs themselves don't matter. What matters is sincerity. But it's possible to be sincerely wrong. I might believe sincerely that the earth is flat. In fact, it so happens that I was founder and president of the Flat Earth Society in my school. I I formed this society as a protest against the last-minute rush that all sick formers made to join societies that made them look intelligent and caring on a university application form. But anyway, that, that eccentricity is irrelevant. My point is that sincerity on its own is a dangerous thing. I would rather be cynical about an untruth than a sincere believer in it. That's outstanding. And just to clarify to our followers, Jim does not believe in a flat earth. <laughs> just to be totally clear on that. Um, that's brilliant. I, I would have I would have signed up to that, Jim, if you were if you were heading it up. Um so how can secular people today convince themselves that the clear doctrinal differences between major religions in the world don't actually matter? That being sincere is enough. Well, the problem is that people like that assume that the actual doctrines are unprovable mumbo-jumbo, nothing more than comforting myths that help us cope in a world of pain. In other words, the important thing in religion 
Uh, the important things are the nice ethical bits about loving others. Talk of reincarnation or karma aren't seen as ideas which are true or false because they're completely unprovable. Now, in actual fact, in most cases, I actually agree with that point. Most of the stuff in the religions of the East uh, is mere philosophical speculation that could never be proved. How could anyone ever prove that reincarnation exists? If you told me confidently, Ollie, that in a previous life you were Napoleon, how could I know if you did in fact lose the Battle of Waterloo? And Christianity stands apart from every other religious belief system in this regard. Christianity isn't a set of speculative philosophical ideas. It claims to be truth revealed in history. And that means uniquely that it can be tested. Jesus was either born in Bethlehem or he wasn't. He either died on a cross or he didn't. He either rose from the dead or he didn't. So the first attempt to overcome Christianity's exclusive claims doesn't work. It makes no sense to say that all the major religions of the world basically teach the same thing. You can only make that argument if you consign 95% of all religious doctrines into a big bin marked completely unprovable speculations that don't really matter. And Christianity by its nature cannot be placed in that category. The underlying charge against Christianity in this context is the charge of arrogance, and we'll think about that in a moment. But surely it is an act of arrogance when someone arbitrarily dismisses all the knowledge claims from all religions and arbitrarily reduces them to ethical systems. Who gives you the right to do such a thing? Okay, so the first attempt to dilute the exclusivity of Christianity was to say that all religions basically say the same thing. What's the second attempt? The second attempt to dilute the exclusivity of Christianity comes by saying each religion sees a part of spiritual truth, but no one can see the whole truth. People who say this sort of thing invariably trot out the old story about the men of Hindustan. I'm sure you know it. The story goes that six blind men are asked to touch an elephant and explain what they think it is. One man touches the elephant's tusk and says it's a spear. The second finds the trunk and says it's a snake. The third feels the leg and says he's feeling a tree. The fourth grabs the tail and says he's got hold of a rope. The ear is called a fan and the elephant's side a wall. So the idea is that each blind man caught hold of a part of the elephant and made a partial truth claim. Okay, well, it's a nice story, but it simply doesn't work. First of all, they were all wrong. An elephant isn't a combination of snake, tree, wall, spear, and rope. The men of Hindustan were all blind, so they made up stuff based on their own experience. But here is the crucial flaw. That story also assumes a narrator who can see the entire elephant. So the person who says that all religions have partial access to truth is claiming that they have a unique vantage point from which to see all of reality. And from that absolute vantage ground, they can then claim to be able to relativize all the absolute claims made in religious doctrines. So that second attempt to dilute the exclusivity of Christianity tries to say that each religion has access to a bit of the truth. But it turns out that that explanation is itself breathtakingly arrogant. People who make that claim sit in some Olympian vantage point, looking at the partial truths and religions in the light of their own complete knowledge. Yeah, it's quite ironic, actually, uh, the very thing that they're accusing Christianity of, and yet they're, they're guilty of the same thing. In recent years, a third attempt has been made to dilute the exclusivity of Christianity, and that comes from postmodernism. And it says, in effect, that people believe what they believe because they're socially conditioned to do so. 
They say that truth is really a thing produced by culture. So we all belong to a community that reinforces the plausibility of some beliefs and discourages other beliefs. So because we're all locked into a particular culture and time, we can never judge the rightness or wrongness of our beliefs. This is a really strong attack. I think postmodernism makes the strongest attack on Christianity's exclusivity. Postmodernism says that even if there is some universal truth, no one could access it because our mental faculties are produced by a particular culture. Now, the problem with this view is that it confuses something that is difficult with something that is impossible. Of course, Christianity was more plausible to me because I was raised in a Christian culture. But does that mean that I can't weigh the claims of Christianity? I can still do the hard work and ask myself what I think about the Bible's affirmations about God and the human condition. I can still ask myself whether they're true or false. And there is a great irony here. Very often the people who will raise this point were themselves raised in a Christian culture. But they thought hard about atheism, for example, and they then decided to reject Christianity. So they stand before you as living proof that even though it is hard, truth claims can be disentangled from culture. Just because something is hard doesn't mean it's impossible. It's pretty common for people to ask Christians, suppose you had been raised in a Muslim family in Morocco, would you not be a Muslim believer today? Well, I wouldn't be me, of course. If that circumstance had occurred, I'd be a quite different person. But for the sake of argument, let me concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Belfast, my beliefs would have been quite different. But here's the point. That same thing, that same argument, goes for the relativist. If the relativist had been born in Morocco, he almost certainly wouldn't be a relativist. So does it follow that his relativist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable cultural process? This argument from postmodernism shoots itself in the foot. If I believe that people only believe things because their culture affirms those beliefs, then that applies to me as well as to religious people. It turns out I am only a secular liberal who believes the truth is culturally relative because I was born into a secular liberal culture which told me the truth is culturally relative. So we've thought about the three attempts to dilute those famous words of Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can't say that all religions say the same thing because they all, as, as you've clearly demonstrated, Jim, contradict each other. The only way we could escape the contradictions is to place 95% of the truth claims in a big bin called unprovable speculation and then arbitrarily decide to just leave in the ethical bits about how we live. We can't say that religions each have access to a bit of truth because only someone who has this unique kind of bird's eye perspective, bird's eye view of the entirety of spiritual truth could make such a claim. And that in itself would be a very arrogant thing to do. And we can't say that religious truths are just cultural beliefs, so we don't need to take them seriously. We can't say that because the idea that religious truths are just cultural beliefs is itself just a cultural belief. So by its own argument, that idea shoots itself in the foot. Maybe we should tackle the underlying charge here, Jim, and that's the charge that Christianity is being arrogant in making an exclusive truth claim. How would you answer that charge? Well, are Christians really so arrogant for saying that they are right and everyone else is wrong? Christianity isn't the only belief system to claim exclusivity, so why single us out? I mean, think of atheism for a moment. Atheists say that Muslims are wrong, Christians are wrong, Buddhists are wrong, Zoroastrians are wrong. They say that every other competing worldview is wrong, and they are the only ones who are right. 
Atheism is every bit as exclusive as Christianity. Why did Richard Dawkins write the book called The God Delusion? Why did Christopher Hitchens write God is Not Great? Those men were trying to convert me to atheism. Now, were they being arrogant? I could make the same argument for Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism. Exclusivity isn't a particularly Christian claim. So there is a sense that we can say right back at you to those who criticize Christianity's claims. What about agnostics who claim that we can't know anything true about God or religious truth? Are they not exercising more humility than Christians? Okay, we need to think carefully here. There are two types of agnosticism. The soft agnostic says, there may be truth about God available to me, but I just haven't found it. Well, that position really reduces to intellectual laziness. It's a lack of curiosity. I just couldn't be bothered to go looking for answers to the big questions of life. And it's not a position which any thoughtful person could respect. But the second type of agnosticism is sometimes called hard agnosticism. And it says that it is impossible for us to know any religious truth. So let's think about that position for a moment. Hard agnostics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual things cannot be true. But their objection is itself the assertion of religious truth. The hard agnostic insists that God is unknowable, that he hasn't revealed himself. I remember once talking to a student who told me, uh, after a talk I'd given, that we can never know anything about God. I was consuming a large cherry scone at the time, so I gave him a few minutes to advance his argument. Then I asked him, So you think that we can know nothing about God? Nothing, he said. So he can't be the God of the Bible, can he? No, of course not. And he can't be the God of the Quran either. No. Well, I said, it turns out you know rather a lot about God. You know that he is unknowable, that he isn't the God of the Bible. But while I was eating my scone, you told me repeatedly that we could know nothing about God. So you see the the problem? Hard agnosticism isn't an exercise in epistemic humility. It is self-refuting, which means it can't be true. You made a rather curious statement at the start of this conversation, Jim, when you said that in its most important sense, Christianity isn't exclusive at all. What do you mean by that? Well, up to now, we've been focusing on the idea of exclusivity in the sense of it being a truth claim. But what is that truth claim? The truth declared by Christianity is that salvation is open to all people. In that sense, it is wide open, generous, and not remotely exclusive. Let me quote famous words from the Apostle Peter, words which reveal the big-hearted openness of a God who wants to save the entire world. The Lord is patient with you, he says, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus is the only way to God, but he offers that way to everyone without exception. So there is nothing exclusive about Christianity. In the most important sense of the term, God doesn't want to exclude anyone. The gospel is open to people from every culture, every social background, every ethnicity. The New Testament takes delight in the inclusivity of salvation. In Christ there is neither male or female, slave nor free. Or think about John's apocalyptic vision of the future in the book of the Revelation, when he sees people from every tribe and nation and language group gathered around the throne of God. And think now of the most famous verse in scripture, John 3 verse 16. It begins, for God so loved the world. Jesus enraged the petty nationalists of his day when he healed and cared for people from other races and creeds. He always reached out past the exclusion placed on people by the Pharisees. 
So the God of the Bible is never exclusive. His welcoming arms encircle everyone. The author, the offer of salvation is made to all people everywhere. Yeah, and that's that's something I absolutely love about Christianity and I love about God is um, his willingness to uh, engage with people, to, to draw people to himself from, from all nations uh, across the world, and he doesn't distinguish. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful truth. But but what about the people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think that's a, a very common question. What, what about people like that? Well, the Bible teaches that people down through the ages have received different amounts of light. And we will each be judged by how we have responded to the light we have received. This is the condemnation, says our Lord. Light came into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. You see, Ollie, it's possible for anyone, anywhere, to repent. It's possible for anyone, anywhere, to turn from worthless idols to the true and living God, to their Creator. But where does that leave the work of Christ on the cross? Well, No one will get into heaven without the atoning work of Christ on the cross. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But that principle applies to people like Moses and Abraham just as much as it does to you and me. Now, Moses and Abraham never got to hear the name Jesus, but they will be in heaven because of his atoning sacrifice. So when it comes to people who live and die without ever having heard the gospel, we must respect the silence of Scripture by going beyond its words we can end up creating a system that besmirches the character of God. So to sum up, Christianity is exclusive in the sense that it claims to be true, but it is not exclusive in the sense that no one gets excluded. The Lord is patient with you, says Peter, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Thanks, Jim. It's been a really interesting episode, and thank you to each one of you guys who've been listening. Uh, In particular, we want to say thanks for sharing our last episode, Can I Know God? Um, We're really encouraged by the number of people who shared that and the number of people who have listened to that. And we're praying that the Lord will really use that for his glory and to to see people saved. And what a wonderful thing that would be. Thanks so much for listening to episode 25. Really good to have you guys with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with friends and family or post a review on Apple Podcasts please do email us at theequipproject at gmail.com or send us a message via Instagram. That's all from us for now.